0: Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid & Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. Today, we have a very special episode. I'll be interviewed by Charlie Perry, who's the founder of Astro Productions, who is the producer of this Unboxed podcast. We'll be talking about how I came out with Astro how I grew it, how I got investment, and how I scaled it to where it is. This is a journey and it's a lifestyle. You have to have had savings. You need to be willing to work. As a founder, you're an athlete. You kind of dip into everything, you're doing everything. I had a very clear vision. I wanted to make this a cult global brand and I wanted to do things completely different. Hi, Charlie. Hello, thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Connie, I know you've spoken with Sarah before, who was obviously your first employee, and you covered a lot of ground there. So I think what's going to be great in this interview is kind of showing the audience exactly what it's like to be like even pre-first employee, and then really knowing where you want to change and kind of get investment. So I'm going to start out kind of asking you about your initial idea, and and then we'll go into that. So what I would love to know is how you kind of came about with the idea of Astrid and Mew and kind of what the steps were, the initial steps to get to that point of hiring Sarah?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. So I started my career in investment banking. Mm-hmm. I loved it, but I hated it at the same time. <laughs> so I was there for four and a half years, maybe a year too much. Yeah. Um, I quit. I was burnt out. And then I came to London to go to business school to find myself. And Mm -hmm. whilst doing that, I was determined to get a job in fashion because I wanted to switch careers. I was thinking about what can I do better than everyone else? Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought, you know, combined with investment banking experience, finance background, and a sense of, I guess, creativity and fashion, I could do well. So I did a stunt at LVMH And when I graduated from business school, um, I just decided to start my own thing. I always knew I wanted to start my own business and Mm -hmm. I felt ready at that point. And Mm -hmm. there was nothing to lose because I was a student. Um, I didn't have a salary at that time. I didn't want to be, you know, golden handcuffed by having a job and having to leave that job. So when I graduated, I was thinking about different industries within fashion. And Mm -hmm. obviously, jewelry always... Had a you know special place for me because I used to travel a lot. I talk about this quite a lot, but my favorite pastime was going to markets and boutiques and haggling and buying jewelry with my mom and my sister. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, so jewelry always has a special um, place in my heart, but I also equally loved apparel. Um, shoes and bags. And when I kind of did a skim of the market, I felt like there were so many cool brands in apparel and there there just wasn't any gap. Whereas jewelry, I felt like there was a gap for branded jewelry Mm -hmm. that was well-made, well-branded. I think well-branded was key Mm -hmm. and well-marketed and well-designed like all around. Mm -hmm. It just didn't exist. So that's where the idea came from. And the initial vision was to create a global cult brand. I didn't have a plan, but Mm -hmm. I had a vision that I wanted to make a really cool brand that parallels fashion brands mm. because that didn't exist in jewelry
1: yeah because I suppose LVMH is very much high-end brands isn't it so you have that understanding I imagine from working there on how to kind of captivate an audience with a brand and what year was that exactly this, around? this was so I graduated in 2011
0: mm-hmm. and that's where I started ideating and we launched yeah. the brand in 2012
1: yeah because around that time there, there weren't brands that were the kind of more affordable but like you said suppose well branded but more than costume jewelry and less than like a really expensive investment piece that might have cost you thousands of pounds if it was solid gold.
0: Yeah that's Um, correct so the category we're in is called demi fine mm -hmm. so we use sterling silver base and solid gold and Mm -hmm. they don't cost a fortune but they're still precious. Yeah
1: and I suppose will last a lot longer as well. So in terms of those days where you were ideating I know you said you didn't have a plan and I think that can be quite important for people to know how did you go from kind of literally that little seed of an idea that then became Ashford and and you decided the kind of style or the kind of person that you were going for. How did you kind of start putting in steps to get to the first piece of jewelry, like getting delivered to your house for you to see and feel?
0: I kind of have to think back at what I actually did because it's kind of a jumble at this (laughs) point. But I think I came up with the the name first Mm -hmm. because I wanted it to be kind of a lifestyle brand. Yeah. I wanted it to sound cool. Mm-hmm. And I wanted two girls' names. That's like... And then I did some research on names and I wanted to have a Western name and an Eastern name. Mm-hmm. And Astrid is a Western name. Mew is a... Eastern name to combine my background. Yeah, because I grew up in the U.S., but I was born in Korea. So that's the name came there. And then I pulled out different aesthetics on Pinterest. Mm-hmm. The brands that I loved, I loved Japanese brands. I loved Nordic brands. So um, that was the initial aesthetics of Eastern yeah. Mu. And then I knew where to go for suppliers because in Korea, custom jewelry manufacturing used to be huge in the '70s and '80s, and I knew where these suppliers were. So I. Um, found this one particular supplier who was completely different from all the other suppliers. Yeah. Typically, jewelry supply market is dominated by middle-aged men. No <laughs> way. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting, interesting. isn't it? Yeah. Because it's such a feminine product, but yeah. you know, it's dominated by the middle, like where, wherever you go globally. Yeah. But this supplier I met, she was around my age and yeah. she just inherited her that business because her um, father passed away early unfortunately and she never wanted to be a jewelry supplier but she was kind of keeping that business together Yeah, she said she wanted to be a ski instructor she never she never dreamt of being a um, so I think she was very inspired by what I was doing she was also very proud of me as a fellow Korean like being in England in London launching a brand so she um, really bought into the vision Yeah, and she supported me so much so the initial designs I kind kind of like talked about or sketched and she would just produce for me Mm -hmm. and there were no minimum quantities because she was so proud of being part of
1: this. Yeah because I suppose that's one of the kind of early things in if you're selling a product with your company or whatever it is that it might be if it's a physical thing you have to pay upfront to have the stock. So if that's a term that you can kind of negotiate, then that's a really good way of kind of getting into the market, I suppose, without having to spend. Yeah. And
0: normally, typically, if you were to start a jewelry brand, then you go to the suppliers, minimum order quantities would be 100 or 200 units, yeah. which is not a lot right now in our terms. But when you're yeah. um, starting out, you don't know how many you're going to sell. Yeah. And in fact, when I launched the website, we probably sold one a week from a friend.
1: Yeah. family. Yeah. Oh, that's nice, though. Like a, kind yes. of a real like home starting point. So when you had kind of, obviously, you've had this idea and you said that you went to business school, I can imagine a lot of your experience in investment banking would have given you a good amount of knowledge, I suppose, in how business works, how finance works. You were clearly very good with numbers at that point. What was it that business school taught you that you didn't know before? And was that crucial for you to then be able to go and start Astrid and Mew, or do you think you could have done it without going to business
0: I, school? I loved going to business school and mm-hmm. I would repeat that mm-hmm. if I were given the chance. But I think in terms of learning, I've learned so much more in the first year of starting Astrid and Mew than, you than know, any of my business degrees because I did two years of MBA and I did four years of undergraduate business degree. Yeah. I mean, it was good to do the MBA to meet so many friends, like-minded people, hang out, take some time out, but it was an expensive holiday for me. Yeah. It was definitely worth it because it gave me confidence to move to London and start a brand in a location where I had no connections Mm -hmm. or like nothing. Do you think
1: business school, I suppose, in that aspect can be really good for those who don't necessarily want to start their own brand? It's not just for people. It's for people to kind of get into business in general.
0: Yeah, I think um, business school is really good if um, you want a change of career. Okay, yeah. For instance, like if you were working in a normal corporate job and you want to be a consultant, Mm -hmm. or if you want to be an investment banker, it's such a great way to go. Yeah, Um, It's not the best route for entrepreneurs because entrepreneurialism is very quick and it it can get academic, right? It's it's a
1: school. That's it. And I guess at that point as well, your kind of learning style, I suppose everybody is slightly different. But if you do well being kind of thrown in the deep end and learning while you're doing, then you'll learn a lot more, like you said, when you actually get started. And also, um,
0: you know, early stage of the business is not necessarily about running a business. I think I I probably apply more of the business principles now being Mm a you know, larger size um, business CEO. But mm. initially, you have to take the photos, you have to go to the post office. So, I mean, I think you could be a 16 year old and do all of that. if yeah. you're
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you've got that kind of vision for exactly what it is you want to execute. So you're the sole founder of AstroMU. Has a co-founder ever been something that's kind of crossed your mind that you want?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You get really lonely when you're mm. a sole founder. So if I were to start another business, I think I'd be open to having a co-founder because I think it will help alleviate all of that and, you know, help fill my gaps. And I'm like, I guess, more aware of myself, what my shortcomings are now. Yeah. So I can probably find someone who can support me and I can support.
1: Exactly. And I suppose as well, there is the kind of added benefit of, like you said, filling gaps, but also being able to kind of spread the workload so you can get maybe more done. Yeah.
0: And be um, a shoulder to cry on because it gets really lonely. Yeah. You probably know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it's also just um, being able to vent sometimes being able to just kind of get out what's on your mind and get a perspective and making sure you choose the right person to do that too is is quite is quite important but also difficult because the responses sometimes you get are don't go too hard on yourself and you're like I really wish that that like, yeah, that's not helpful. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not.
0: I think it will be helpful to have someone who has the full context, yeah. who's an equal to you.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you started off as an online-only business, right? Is that right? Yes, online and business. Then Topshop was a big change yes. for you. By that, I mean you had your, I assume, started off Selling through the website and the marketing kind of came driving traffic there. How did you kind of find that initial audience? Because I suppose around that time, I remember that was my first year of union. Social media was definitely a thing, but it wasn't what it is now. And it wasn't what it even was 10 years ago. So how did you get people to go to your website? Was it mostly through social or that kind of Google ads, maybe? It was a combination of
0: everything. So we didn't have any budget to do ads, but. Mm -hmm. The first investment, biggest investment I made was hiring a PR agency. So through PR, we had loads of traffic. So like, you know, press was so powerful back Mm. then, 12 years ago. It was a different landscape. The Mm. influencers are not who they are now. Social Mm -hmm. media is not what it is now. The first couple of weeks of launching the brand, we were listed on Grazia and Mm. The Stylist, which was a huge deal and we were so lucky. I guess we had a very clear point of view Mm -hmm. and completely different. The design and the aesthetics were completely different from Mm. what was in the market. So the press loved it. So that really drove and became a huge part of growing the brand. And that coupled with sending things to bloggers at that time. They were writing about their lifestyle restaurant they went to what they wore so yeah um, I worked with loads of bloggers and just sent gifting
1: yeah and that was the time of being able to literally like clickable links because I suppose that hasn't really gone to Instagram in that you can't see something click it you have to kind of I suppose you can on stories now. yeah but at the time you could go to a blog yes click straight through and buy. So I suppose it's really seamless. Yes, yeah. yeah.
0: It was very trackable. Yeah. And also Instagram had just started out. Mm. At at that point it was 20, I guess Instagram launched in 2012, 2013. Mm. Um, I got on it instantly. And I think the first year we grew to 20,000 followers. So it was very easy to grow followers at that time. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know whether, you know, we could monetize through Instagram, but I knew like we had to be on it.
1: Yeah. So then when you were kind of, I assume, starting to build the revenue and the sales through the website, was that the point where you started to kind of question whether it could be in store? So I suppose maybe not starting out your own store, but being part of concession stands in places like Topshop, because that was something that you did. Yes. What was that decision making? process.
0: Another way of getting to market was doing loads of pop-ups. So Mm -hmm. I lived in Notting Hill at that time and I knocked on doors of boutiques, beauty salons to see whether I can do pop-ups. So I tried to do pop-ups every weekend and that's how we kind of got the word out there. So if you look at our initial customer cohort, a lot of them are from W2 postcode because I was holding these pop-ups in Notting Hill. Oh,
1: that's such a nice idea. And also, I guess you really start to, you get a good view of who your customer is and who's buying. Yes, and you can chat
0: to the Customers yeah. and ask them whether how they've heard of us,
1: yeah. whether they saw us through magazines or they just walked in. Yeah, because also it's one thing, I suppose, going after a certain audience, and then the other thing actually achieving it and making sure that you're connecting with them. With Topshop, obviously, I suppose that's not as quite as simple as going in and asking if you can <laughs> put your jewelry in the store. Yeah. How did that happen? Was it a kind of cold reach out email, or was that something that came off the back of like you're saying of press? Yes, yeah, so
0: it was off the back of a pop up we did. So mm-hmm. at this point, I, I can't remember. Exactly when this was, maybe this was like three, four years into the business. Mm-hmm. We had enough resources to do a pop up in Piccadilly Circus. Wow. So it was a joint effort between different small brands. I think the top shop buyer at that time happened to be in our pop up, and she fell in love. I didn't. I didn't remember her coming, and she never said that she yeah. was the buyer, but she bought our things and she fell in love and she contacted us. Oh, so great. it was. It came by chance. So when you're out there, you don't know who's going to stop by. So just like you know, keep on being
1: out there. Yeah. Do you think that's like, I know obviously there's a lot of, I suppose with Instagram being so different now, and maybe the high street is obviously there is a, a proof of it working because of Ashford and you now, but I suppose people, it's cheap for them to start online. Do you think it's still important that they try and make those connections and they do those pop-ups?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially yeah. for, um, products like jewelry where you have sentimental value and where you have to touch and feel. Yeah. I think it's so important. Yeah.
1: So when you were kind of um, starting out, I know you said that your initial supplier was kind of really supportive of you and I guess you were really lucky in that sense. How did that evolve? How long did you stay with that supplier? Are you still with them now? Like what's that relationship and how has it changed? We've worked with them until
0: maybe three years ago mm-hmm. and It was a very small supplier. They had a, you know, workshop, small workshop. Mm -hmm. They just couldn't keep up with the demand. So we had to part ways with that supplier, unfortunately. But I'm still friends with her.
1: Oh, amazing. Were you designing the the jewelry from the very beginning with her and she was making it and sending it over? Yes. But I got a lot of help
0: on design as well because I didn't know anything about jewelry. I didn't know anything technical. But she had a team of designers and she could do the CAD drawings, which is a technical drawing. So I would either talk about something or give her a reference or draw it out, do a rough drawing Mm -hmm. and sketch and she would turn that into reality. Wow. So she was an extension of our team because we have all of that in-house now, but I had none of that, it was just me.
1: Yeah, so when you're starting, I I think it's really interesting and important for people who are wanting to start a brand or who maybe are in those early days you not knowing anything about the jewellery trade wasn't the thing that kind of held you back? No, I asked
0: loads of questions. I was shameless.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and I was going to say, I think a lot of people would have the preconception that they have to know everything to be able to start. So was that quite daunting to... kind of say well I've seen this gap I don't have much kind of experience here I just I suppose at that point you're spotting the trends and then working with the supplier so closely to make it kind of come to life I
0: I don't think it was daunting I guess like I was confident Mm -hmm. in my ability to learn things and just ask questions and yeah I was just shameless I went to a jewelry fair once to find suppliers and I just didn't have the jargons and the lingo. And this yeah. lady pulled me aside, bless her. She's <laughs> like, you can't talk like that. You're going to get ripped off. And then she gave me all the vocabulary. Maybe she liked me. She thought like it was endearing that yeah. I didn't know anything. But you have people that help you along the way. Yeah. If you're open.
1: Yeah, not everybody's out to get you. Yeah. I suppose the, the key takeaway there is that... Um, you have to have trust and conviction in yourself over anything else at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before we get into the kind of the growth, the scaling and the investment side, you obviously are much more experienced now and you're able to kind of take a look back at early stage founding from your experience, but what you can see other people doing, I suppose. What do you think the number one mistake that early stage founders make?
0: I think not moving quickly enough, not thinking too much. Mm-hmm. Because when you're small and you're trying to overanalyze, you don't have enough data. You just got to go with your gut. So just mm. overanalyzing, overthinking and not moving quickly enough.
1: Yeah. So I suppose also just kind of being open and willing to test and yeah, absolutely having the time and the patience yeah. to do it, I yeah. suppose. Because you
0: don't have a lot to lose when you're in, like in an early stage. So just do it yeah. and learn from it.
1: Yeah, totally. So When you were kind of, I know you hired Sarah as your first employee and you've spoken quite openly. If somebody's listening, they've not listened to that episode. I think it's super important to go back and listen and hear kind of what that dynamic was. It was really nice to hear from Sarah. But obviously, things then start to pick up when you've got a team and it's not just you. And I guess you are responsible for people. So naturally, things might become a little bit more intense. But what was that kind of change for you and the brand in terms of okay well we've had our top shop we're doing the pop-ups we've got quite good online business now how did you kind of make sure you carried on with that momentum but you also had your sights set on where you wanted to be in like another year's time? I think changing my mindset from being a founder to CEO was a huge one Mm -hmm. so
0: as a founder, you're an athlete. You kind of dip into everything. You're doing everything. You're kind of the star of the show. Mm-hmm. But a CEO, you need to step back and you need to let other people be the stars. And you're kind of stepping back as a coach or mm-hmm. like a manager of a sports team. Yeah. So I think the founder needs to make that transition first so mm-hmm. that the team can flourish and then get the team in order. Have a, you know, really good vision and direction, but mm. don't overbear them. Give them loads of autonomy so they can thrive and move quickly as well.
1: Yeah. You do get to a point, if you want to scale and you want to grow, you, you realize quite quickly that you can't do it all. And the more people you hire to take on different roles means the kind of the more redundant you are, which I think some people might feel uncomfortable with that. But the more you can take yourself away and it can serve itself without you, the, that's a good sign, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. And there's plenty of things to do when you step out. Mm. Because when you're in the weeds and doing the doing, you don't have time to plan and be imaginative. Whereas if you leave that room for yourself, if you offload everything suddenly you have so much freedom to think and yeah. plan the future, come up with a vision and do things differently.
1: Yeah, because it's it becomes kind of on business rather than in business. Yeah, work, absolutely. Which is so important. So I think it was around year three of Ashton Me you decided to get investment. Is that right? Correct. I suppose, again, a lot of that will come with fore planning, knowing what you wanted to achieve. But at what point did you think, OK, I need to raise or want to raise? Um, and how did you start that? Did you kind of Pull together a deck and just cold email people or were there kind of contacts that you knew?
0: I decided to raise investment in 2015, so three years into the business, mm-hmm. as you said, to open our first permanent store. Mm-hmm. So I did loads of pop-ups, as I mentioned, and I knew that this would work if yeah. we opened a physical store. So I had my eyes set on this small unit in St. Christopher's Place, which is still there. Oh, and that's I so wanted, nice. Yeah, and I wanted to raise enough money to um, pay for the rent do the shop fit, proper shop fit, not just mm-hmm. IKEA furniture, like yeah. how I did my pop-ups, and also invest a bit on marketing because mm-hmm. at this point, influencer marketing and social media was getting a lot of traction and I wanted to invest more to mm-hmm. pump that out. So I put together a rough deck and I had an elevator pitch in mind and I just spoke to friends that worked in startups and um, you know family members who could kind of look at this and mm-hmm. refine the deck. So that was a very short process and mm-hmm. I'm used to putting together the decks because because that's what I did in this banking. It's like yeah. deck and um, financial models all the time. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Good experience. <laughs> yeah, so
0: I had this. And when I started telling people that I'm raising money, they started introducing me to different people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've met VCs, private equities, and we were too early for them Mm -hmm. because we were quite small. And then angel investors and individuals. So um, that's how I met my initial investors.
1: Yeah. Was that quite a daunting process in terms of kind of going out there? Maybe you were used to it in investment banking. I know it's quite a kind of intense industry as it is. But was there a lot of time that you were spent kind of pitching and it and it felt quite relentless? Maybe I know some people kind of say it yeah, is. Yeah,
0: it was relentless. It took about six months from mm-hmm. initial deck preparation to money coming into the mm-hmm. bank account because you, you have to kiss a lot of frogs, especially yeah. if you're in a lifestyle category where investors weren't like too aware of, especially mm-hmm. jewelry. No one knew of of a big jewelry company. So you had to give them a lot of references. People would mm. be like, "Oh, I I like you, but I'll I'll maybe consider if another investor comes in." So yeah. I think it was just like a lot of that. And then if it takes three months from initial meeting to like going back and saying, oh, Hey, like this guy's interested, you've just kind of lost momentum as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So six months was the kind of the beginning up until you had the cash to be able to go to the, to get the rent on the, on the shop. Yes. So when you're pitching, if there's somebody listening now who, Is considering investment or they've kind of seen it's something that they might want to do for the scaling purposes. What do you think the most important thing to go into these pictures with is? Obviously, you've created the deck. Yeah. I can imagine a lot of it is, and we've heard from other people who are on the podcast that the founder is really important that there's a a relationship there between the investor and the founder. So you can go in there with an amazing deck, but if they don't like you, it could be tricky. So what should the mindset of somebody going into those pictures be?
0: I think you should just go and relax as yourself because Mm -hmm. people want to trust you, but also Mm. with a lot of positivity and, I guess, um, confidence because they also want to believe in you and go on a journey with you. Mm -hmm. So you need to sell the dream um, without it being too, like, overly ambitious. So yeah. it's a combination of both. You need to be authentic but super ambitious Yeah. Um, in terms of the energy that you bring. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the deck content, what they want to see is um, competitive landscape. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of founders think, I don't have any competition, but, like, that's the worst thing you can yeah. say. I think, like, just laying out and, you know, letting them know that you understand the market, mm-hmm. telling them what your USP is versus mm-hmm. the competitors, that's very important. And then... And another thing is like how much you're raising. Mm -hmm. Obviously, all all the number, how much you're raising, what the valuation you're thinking is Mm -hmm. um, and what you're going to use that money for. That's super important.
1: Yeah, that's one thing I think I've seen. Um, I know there's like a lot of kind of resource online now, I suppose, in terms of support for people and what decks need to say. I think one misconception is that you might want to kind of pluck a number out of the air and say, well, that's roughly how much I want to spend. And then I can do X, Y, and Z. But you need to make it very clear how you're going to spend that money and why it's important to spend in those areas.
0: Exactly. Because they want to know that you have a vision, but also a plan.
1: Yeah, that's so true. You need (laughs) to actually get it done.
0: You need to do big picture, but also small
1: picture as well. So what were your big worries kind of going into those meetings? What were you kind of thinking, oh God, what if they ask this or what if this doesn't come off? Like what was the thing that was kind of plaguing you the most in that process? I don't
0: think I had any worries going into the process. I was quite relaxed. I don't don't know why, but I was quite relaxed. Um, So there were no worries. But I guess like deep inside the worry post like investment would have been if I do get investment, am I going to completely lose my independence and autonomy? So that Mm. was my worry. Yeah. So what will come after the investment was a worry. But I never like went into a pitch being worried or scared yeah
1: because that's a i suppose a a really interesting point in how much you're going to give away as you just said how much Mm. are you willing to hand over for the money that you need in order to be able to kind of action the plan that you've put in front of them Mm. so the valuation side for somebody who's not ever considered that or it's a very much a seedling idea how would somebody go about getting that valuation
0: i think you need to ask seasoned investors -hmm. Because it really depends on how much they're willing to pay. Yeah. And then get aggregated a little bit because you have to create demand, don't you?
1: Yeah. And working backwards with it, I suppose. So, when somebody's kind of in an investment pitch, what can they expect? What sort of questions can they expect to get from if they're selling a product like you were?
0: I guess how big is the market opportunity? Because investors are, at the end of the day, coming in for a return. So what's the market opportunity? And if there are any comparables, for instance, um, Pandora is a listed jewelry company. And I think they're the only listed jewelry company. Oh, really? I think so. I mean, I can't think of anything. And by anything listed, else. you
1: mean on the stock market? On the market. stock market. Yeah. So
0: there is a price yeah. for that business. And, yeah. you know, it's... um. A multi-billion-dollar business. So having that in the presentation or having that in mind was very important Mm -hmm. for them to be able to visualize how big this market can be. Yeah. So that's one question they always ask. Mm. Competition, like Mm -hmm. I mentioned, is something that they always ask. Mm -hmm. If you say there's no competition, they they will not like it. Yeah. Like shred you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And you know your forecast. Mm-hmm. What what your vision is in five years, how mm-hmm. big you think this um, company can be and how you're going to get there.
1: So for product-based businesses, when you're um, kind of, I suppose, building that five-year plan or building what the end result is, do you think that it needs to be either the, the end results are getting on the stock market, so maybe going public? or selling to a bigger corporation? Are they the two things that you think people should be looking to to achieve in the long run?
0: Yeah. So when an investor comes in, they will ask you for an exit plan Mm -hmm. because they're coming in to make a return. So there are different avenues, right? You can list on the stock market, Mm -hmm. which is a very long term journey from an initial seed investment, or you could sell to a big corporation, Mm -hmm. or you could sell to private equities. There are so many private equities at different stages of the business. So that's the
1: common route a lot of founders will take. Yeah. I imagine your initial set of investors were angel investors. Yes. Can you just explain exactly what that is? Because yeah. there's a big difference between an angel investor and, and, and VC.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So an angel investor is a wealthy individual mm-hmm. who's, um, you know, who want to ride on the journey with you, they're typically retired or or they mm-hmm. might not be. And they believe in you as a mm-hmm. person. So building that personal relationship is so important. Mm-hmm. I spoke to Gary in our previous episode. And Gary is an angel investor. He's mm-hmm. invested in um, multiples of businesses. So someone like him
1: mm-hmm. and is a great their, angel investor. Yeah, because it's their personal money. Yes, at the end it's of the their day. personal
0: money. Yeah. Therefore, it's also a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. So being able to get on with that person mm-hmm. is very important. They're in it for the return, but they're in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And when you get angel investment, the founder is in the driving seat, mm-hmm. mostly. Yeah. They they want to support you and cheer you on. Yeah. So that's angel investor. And a venture capital will typically come in with a lot more money. Mm-hmm. I mean, like an angel investor, you typically go for like 500,000 to a million mm-hmm. pound raise mm-hmm. in aggregate. A VC would maybe put in a million or 2 million, but their growth expectation will be very high. Yeah, I mean, you'd be pressured to exit much more quickly.
1: Yeah, and also from a VC point of view, is it correct in thinking that's often pooled money in terms of if you went to a venture capitalist, it would be a pool of money that are from a set of investors as opposed to it just being one person with all of their money going into it, like the agent investor?
0: Yes, so uh, a venture capital is a professional Mm -hmm. institution. Mm -hmm. investors. So there are managers that you'd be speaking to, Mm -hmm. engaging with, but they're pulling money from pension funds, or it could be from teachers' pensions, like loads of different um, institutions that
1: you would never interact with. Yeah. And they're representing a pool of investors. That's correct. Absolutely. If somebody's kind of thinking, okay, well, what's my exit plan going to be? How would you advise somebody who has never done that before and who is maybe kind of in a middle point of, okay, well, I want to get investment. I've got the pitch deck. I I need to figure out exactly what that last point is. If it was a fashion brand, let's say, there's a lot of different brands, I suppose, or businesses that they could sell to. Maybe LVMH could be one Mm -hmm. of them, for example. How would they be able to kind of do their market research to say okay well i think this is the right exit plan or this is the way that we should be working towards that that's what the goal should be
0: in terms of exit plan i don't think you need to have a very specific mm-hmm. exit plan that's like um i guess my first like two cents or mm-hmm. five cents <laughs> <laughs> and if you really wanted to know mm-hmm. i guess you can look at conglomerates fashion brands or companies that acquire different um so you could go into like acquisition like fashion brand Mm -hmm. acquisition. Or you could find a corporate finance advisor and just chat to them and get
1: some market knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that point, you would probably already have a really good kind of view of the market and what the competition would be and what yes. they've previously done and yeah. how you can kind of follow in yeah. their footsteps I yeah. suppose.
0: You could also find a brand that you admire in your category and try to find out who their owners are mm. if, the, if the founder is not an owner yeah. and try to reach out to them.
1: Yeah so with Ashton Mew, then you've you've kind of gone through this pitching process as soon as you'd kind of secured the amount of money that you needed what was the kind of first step for you in that at that point was it um, you obviously went and got the the store You had to hire people to run the store. Like, what was that moment like to kind of say, okay, well, we have to make this store profitable now?
0: I had confidence that it will be profitable because we Mm -hmm. just needed very small stores and Mm -hmm. the rent was affordable. In St. Christopher's Place, we we weren't going to Oxford Street. The risk was quite well managed. Mm -hmm. And I hired an incredible retail manager at that time Mm -hmm. um, who was kind of like owning it. She she was, you know, acting like an owner in terms of managing that store. So I was quite lucky in that sense as well. Yeah.
1: Did you spend a lot of time in the store as well? Or were you mostly yeah. kind of behind the scenes at yeah. that Yeah, I
0: spent a lot of time initially in the store, but mostly I left it um, with this like amazing retail mm-hmm. manager.
1: So you've got your first store, you're now, you've got stores globally. I suppose how difficult was it for you to assess further markets than just the UK to know whether that was kind of the risk you wanted to take or whether you just wanted to stay in this territory?
0: Yeah. So the beauty of an online business is you have so much data. Mm -hmm. You can see where your customers are coming from. And because we started as a digital first brand, when we kind of like went into the US, 70% of our business was online. Mm -hmm. So we had that data. We knew we had customers and fans out in the US, in Mm -hmm. particular New York and LA. So in 2019, we decided to um, host a couple of pop-ups. So we ran three pop-ups and Mm -hmm. they were phenomenal. We had queues lined outside and we were creating so much momentum and buzz and I I knew it would work because we tested it um, through online but also through physical pop-ups. So it was a no-brainer when we opened post-COVID.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of going back to how you did it before in terms of like testing everything out in that way. And it's quite nice, I guess, even though so much of the landscape has changed of probably how you run the business, that kind of core pop-up and being in person with people was still... So important. Yeah, it's so
0: important. You can't lose touch with your customers. Yeah.
1: So, do you travel quite a lot now then to be able to, I suppose, assess how markets are doing? I know you went to New York recently. Was that to see how everything was so you could expand further?
0: A bit of everything. I've been going once a quarter. I've got Mm -hmm. such a great team. I've got a team based here, but I also have store teams out Mm -hmm. there. So, the teams here go out there quite regularly. We Mm -hmm. probably go out from head office once a month. You know, equally, we have a great store manager, great store team out
1: there. Mm. With your investment, was that uh, with further rounds was that kind of one of your you've proved the market in the UK you've proved with the data that you've got that you've got customers over there was that your kind of next step to say to investors we want to go to the US and have physical stores
0: yes that that's part of it but also Mm. UK stores because at that point we only had three stores in the UK Mm -hmm. so UK expansion was was a huge part of getting that next investment so I got that next investment in 2019 so Mm -hmm. four years from the initial angel investment yeah. and all of my angel investors made a huge return yeah when the new institutional investors came in yeah that was part of it as well so to give a return to my shareholders but also expand in yeah. the uk mainly at that point
1: how many angel investors did you have initially around 20 are they all 20 of them still investors now or did they sell No, a
0: lot of them exited in 2019 yeah. when we had the institutional investor right. but we have yeah. we have a couple left
1: so what's your kind of, I suppose, exit plan then? If if you've kind of got yourself to this point, you've got global stores. I suppose there's, yeah. unless you go to space, I suppose there's not much more you could do rather than kind of keep on having more. So what's yeah. your exit
0: plan? It's always up in the air. I could, you know, either get it because, um, you know, my current investors are institutional investors. They mm-hmm. would want an exit at some point. So yeah. it would probably be driven by that. Um, I'd probably have to find a, great partner, either Mm -hmm. corporate or financial partner Mm -hmm. that I go with. I haven't decided yet on a clear path.
1: Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. So going back a little bit, I know you said you had around 20 investors. How many pitches do you think that you did to get those 20? And did you strategically choose those twenty for what they could bring and kind of benefit you and Astridammi?
0: I did six months of pitching. Mm-hmm. But then I got most of my investors through one pitch event. So mm-hmm. I pitched in front of two hundred angel investors. Wow. and I guess because at that point I honed my pitch. Quite yeah. a bit. Like I heard feedback that it was a great pitch, and I had loads of investors coming to my stall, and I created a lot of momentum. So when mm-hmm. you're raising investment, momentum is so important mm-hmm. because everyone wants in on like what everyone else wants. So yeah. we were oversubscribed. So I raised a lot more than I had initially planned mm-hmm. to raise because I had a lot of interest. I don't think like I was very strategic in picking the investors. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, they were all like super nice, but they were giving me a lot of support and like cheerleading at that point, and yeah. I needed like a certain an amount of money. Yeah.
1: So with your um investors that you ended up having, did any of them have a lot of demands attached with obviously aside from the the transaction of a certain percent for how much they were going to give you? Did you have any experience of of investors asking for very specific things? From you in a certain amount of time or anything like that.
0: No, not necessarily. I was quite good in like reporting back to all the investors every month mm-hmm. on how the business is progressing, what I'm doing. So I guess like the communication really helped, and yeah. I had board meetings every quarter. I think I was quite lucky. Yeah, I haven't had like strange demands or weird
1: demands. Yeah, and investment. and I think that highlights the importance as well of moving into more of that CEO role because you don't have time to be doing everything else while also kind of collecting everything that you've been doing. To yeah. be Able to report back to them on, on yeah, how yeah, their exactly. investments make. But difference. I think
0: proactive communication is really important. Yeah,
1: totally. You can't just hide. <laughs> <laughs> before we come to the end, then I think it's really good for us to go over more of a mindset, maybe more of a holistic approach to investment, scaling, starting a business. What do you feel is, and I know we've spoken about this before, the most important thing, I know you're going to say grit. From Developing grit, I think there's kind of conscientiousness, there's confidence, perseverance. What do you think is the kind of most important thing to remind yourself of when you're on a journey of entrepreneurship?
0: You need to have a very clear vision, Mm -hmm. but you also need to be very open-minded. And sometimes they're very contradictory. To have a clear vision, you need to be quite stubborn Mm -hmm. and you need to be very confident. To be open-minded, you have to be very humble. Mm -hmm. So I think balancing those two things are so important. Mm -hmm. You need to know what you stand for, but you also need to listen and be willing to learn from others. Yeah.
1: When you're saying about vision, I think one thing that can be maybe quite difficult for people to do is write down exactly what that vision is. Do you think it's an important exercise for a founder to take time out to really hone what that is? especially I suppose they would have to before investment. But did you have something that was kind of written down like Ashton Mew's vision is dot, dot, dot?
0: I hadn't written anything down, but I had a very clear vision. I wanted to make this a cult Global brand, and mm-hmm. I wanted to do things completely differently. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever um, strayed away from this. So it is very important to have a clear vision. Mm. I'm
1: not sure whether you need to take time out of your business to have this, but it is very important. The mission, the vision, the purpose comes from the reason why you started in the first mm-hmm. place, right? So yeah. that can be a really good yeah. a good place to start.
0: And I think the vision just comes. It needs to be something like you really believe in, you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can like make something up.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. My penultimate question, every business or business founder will have tough times. You don't start a business thinking it's going to be easy, that's yeah. for sure. How have you navigated really tough times and what have you learned from those tough times that's kind of carried you through that you've had to kind of remind yourself of and and use, I suppose, as a bit of a, a coat of armor?
0: I think it's really important to be open to mm-hmm. go through difficult times, open with yourself to be able to articulate what the difficulties are. Also mm. be open to your team so you can share the load and for them to own it as well. Mm. And also be open to getting help. So I, you know, sought out an executive coach back in 2019 Mm -hmm. when I was struggling with team, when I was struggling with growth. And that's really helped me grow Mm. and navigate through tough times.
1: Yeah. And the last question for you is how do you balance life and work? I know you've got two young daughters and I can imagine that's very busy as it is. And I know that you didn't have any children when you first started. So you've navigated early motherhood twice now um how do you strike a balance
0: oh it's difficult you mm. can't you can't ever get that balance mm. i'm still working on it yeah i have no margin in my life also because my husband has a very demanding job mm. getting loads of help whatever help you can get and getting the right partner is the foundation.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: if you don't think your boyfriend or whoever is going to be supportive when you're going through this journey, yeah. don't marry them. Yeah. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> That's the foundation, but you really need to be disciplined in your calendar. So I put everything in my calendar, even my personal things, like yeah. even like PT or playing with children, like play mm. dates, everything, everything yeah. everything's in my calendars. So.
1: Yeah. Do you tend to kind of take time out of the normal working hours to do what you need to do to be able to kind of keep going like you said PT yeah you don't just set that to kind of doing it super late at night
0: that's correct so I used to think oh I need to do it before work seven o'clock and I'll do after work at six o'clock it never Mm -hmm. works Yeah, because you want to have a lion and then you're too exhausted after work. So I just slotted in in between. Now I started doing PTs at 11am. Yeah, And you know, if you do one hour of PT, you gain two hours back because you have so much more energy and you can focus a lot more.
1: Yeah. And clarity. I once heard, I think it was in a book that I'd read. It said you can have it all, just not at the same time. And I think that's exactly what you've just said. You just have to manage, be really intentional with your time, accept and seek the help and don't be dating
0: yeah and also don't confuse (laughs) input with
1: impact that's so interesting yeah
0: (laughs) think about impact not input yeah
1: love that thank you so much Connie I think that's going to be really helpful for people wherever they are on their journey and you are such an inspiration obviously you've created such an incredible cult brand you've done what you've (laughs) set out to do and and you're still on that journey so yeah thank you
0: oh thank you so much Charlie this was really fun yeah it
1: was Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast
0: wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Miu, and Unboxed Instagram page at Unboxed underscore Founder Confidential. See you next week.